Welcome back to the Stop the Violence podcast. Hello, hello, and thank you so much for coming back to listen to the Stop the Violence podcast. And if you are new, not near, it's it's COVID-19, you're not allowed to be near. But if you are new to the podcast, I welcome you here with open arms, whether you are a vegan, a non-vegan, an anti-vegan, like anti-vegan, or a vegan activist. Hello, hello! Today's topic should be really enjoyable and helpful, and it's about how to be happy as a vegan activist. Um, This is more of like a vegan activist podcast, but it's also going to just be a lot of general wisdom of how to be happy in general, whether, you know, you are a vegan or you are an activist or not. Um, The only reason it's a little bit more specified to how to be happy as a vegan activist is that it can sometimes be difficult to be happy as a vegan activist when you're dealing with really tragedy all the time, like talking about it, perhaps viewing footage, going to vigils, seeing the animals on slaughter trucks before their deaths, all this kind of stuff. Um, And in dealing with the bullying, the hate, and the negative bias against vegans is also not a fun thing. So that's why there needs to kind of be another conversation of how to be happy as a vegan activist. But even if you're not a vegan or an activist yet, you will still find this insightful. But first, I do have just a couple of intro topics to go over. Let's start off with some really amazing news, like some really happy news for our happy podcast. Um, That is Saks Fifth Avenue is going for free. So, if you didn't know, Saks Fifth Avenue is like this, I, I don't really know much about it because I'm not into fashion. I I buy like thrift store stuff and I don't support fast fashion. I think it's awful. But um, Saks Fifth Avenue is like this fancy ass clothes place. It's in New York City, but it's also like a chain and it's all over. And um, my activist friends and I have protested outside of and inside of these stores because they still sell real fur in 2021, which is absolutely ridiculous and unnecessary. And they are going for free, like many other places have decided to, thanks a lot in part to activism. Because the good thing about anti-fur activism is that a vast majority of people can, I mean, even if they think we're a little crazy or we're a little, like, too, quote, extreme in our, you know, kindness toward animals, people are generally not very opposed to the idea that we shouldn't murder an animal that's cute and resembles a dog for a jacket. I mean, people can get behind that pretty easily. So it's a really good entry point for getting a non-vegan kind of in the door of understanding animal rights. But because there's not near as much opposition to anti-fur activism, when anti-fur protests happen, they, they garner attention, and the attention that they garner are from people who are like, oh yeah, you know, it is pretty wrong that this place is still selling fur. Maybe I won't 
shop there or maybe like you know I can I can actually agree with these people even if even if they're a little crazy like I'm not against the message and as a result of that it does create pressure and you know this activism works and that's why we also do other activism like grocery store disruptions of course you know that's going to face more opposition at this time in society and in you know general consciousness but yeah so that is amazing and that is a win um unfortunately though they still do sell leather and things like that but this is still a win and still a step in the right direction fur is much easier to drop and get rid of than leather because leather has historically been seen as a very usable material unfortunately for like work boots and things like that so it's a bit harder to get away from luckily we have all these alternatives like cactus leather pineapple leather and we just need to you know get money into those things and get attention onto those things another intro topic is that earthling ed just dropped recently a fire ass video that just totally destroys the crop deaths argument quite in depth and that will be linked in the show notes so definitely support and watch that i have a grocery store disruption on april 24th and sorry if you just heard my cat meow in the background <laughs> okay wow i don't think i've ever managed to make the intro of my podcast this short before that's kind of a victory so here's something to really keep in mind nobody has life figured out like literally none of us have life figured out no one like honestly knows what the fuck is going on as we are floating around on this rock in outer space with all these wacky ass issues going on on our planet you know there's so many self-help books and books on how to be happy out there. Trust me, I've probably read most of them. And I just want to say there's no pressure to force yourself to be happy. I mean, at that point you can get into toxic positivity, which I have an episode all about that. This is not about faking or forcing happiness, and it's certainly not about being happy all the time because that is just not what the human experience is. So I compiled this list of like how to be happy tips from kind of pulling inspiration of researching how to be happy over the last few years and from my spiritual awakening journey and, you know, from teachings of certain people that are spiritual, like into law of attraction, like Aaron Doughty and Ralph Smart, for example. And from, as I said, the self-help books, which I highly recommend getting into self-help books if you've never read one before. But you can also be like me and binge them a bit too much and be a bit too addicted to them, so definitely watch out for that. Self-help can actually be an addiction, and we need to remember, as Ralph Mar Smart says, that we are human beings beings not human doings 
Life is not about constantly trying to strive to be your higher self or your most perfect version. It's also just about experiencing and being. But, you know, that's a tangent. Let's get into the points I've written down. So, one of the biggest things that I had to learn from being a vegan activist, and I've been a vegan activist since the summer of 2019, is don't waste your time and energy in comment sections debating about veganism. It's just not worth it. I mean, think about it. It's helpful to and time and time again check in to picturing your like Kayla Nicholson always says your 80 year old self and how he or she would look back on something such as spending an exorbitant amount of time and energy on comment debates and comment sections excuse my phone <laughs> I remember when I first became an activist, especially, my first post that I ever made on Facebook where I said anything at all about animal rights, and all I did was post a picture that was from Google Images that had a dog and a pig or a baby calf, I can't remember, and it just said, why love one but eat the other? And at that point, you know, I was still friends with a lot of different kinds of people from different groups of, like, different interests that I had. I had, like, a fair amount of random Facebook friends that I didn't even know in person um, because I was soul-searching and trying to, like, you know, <laughs> not to get off topic. So at that point, that post reached a lot of people because people were still paying attention to me because at that point in time, I was, you know, still doing my best to post selfies that were appealing to the male gaze and <laughs> things like that. So my first post got 450 comments of people coming at me with anti-vegan arguments. And at that time, I had been watching Earthling Ed for a couple of months, so I knew how to debate already by this point. Because I had, like, already binge-listened to street debates and stuff like that and kind of memorized a lot of the answers already at this point. So, yes, I humanely slaughtered all of these people in arguments, even way back then. But did it make me feel good? You know, were people willing to be open-minded enough to get past their, you know aggressive and violent opposition to a message of being kind toward animals, I didn't get too many people who were. It was mostly very negative. It mostly turned into people insulting me personally because they didn't have anything else to say to against the argument. It was not a fun time. It was not a good way to spend my time. It made me feel like shit. It made me anxious. It was also triggering. I have, you know, past traumas and pains, just like everyone does, but mine have to do with a lot of verbal abuse and a lot of, you know, verbal hate and put-downs and whatnot. So when I get these comments that have exactly what is a trigger for my past traumas over and over all day, like every day... It's really a lot for the nervous system to handle, and it's really just not worth it. 
because if people are talking that way to you, they're definitely completely in their ego and completely on the defense and it's just not worth having the vegan conversation anyway. And it took me a long time to realize that and to like accept that. I used to feel like I had the responsibility and the obligation to answer every single argument like in depth, providing the scientific sources, wording myself perfectly, and that if I wasn't doing that to every single argument and comment, then I was letting the animals down. And that is just not real reality. And that is just, you know, because here's the thing. If, like I said, if they're acting that way, they're closed off to the message. And there's nothing that I can do. There's no way that I can be a perfect activist to change that. Like that is completely out of my control. If these people are open to the message and curious to the message, realistically, all they need to hear is one or two things about the vegan message, and then they can go on the internet themselves and look up whatever they might have questions about. You know, it's not our responsibility to follow and chase down people. That's why I have this affirmation as part of my daily affirmations that I say out loud every morning. One of them is, my job as a vegan activist is to tell the truth and help animals, and that's it. I think a lot of vegans, if you're on social media even a little bit, have gotten into this trap. Because people will comment and people will be ruthless and you want to engage with them because you think, oh, someone who's a non-vegan who wants to like talk about veganism and I can teach them stuff and I can tell them the truth about things. But it can get so toxic so fast. I mean, don't get me wrong. Having, you know, comment debates when you first become an activism is admittedly an excellent way to practice your debate skills and to practice and make sure that you have all the answers in your arsenal for every argument that can come up. I mean, if you do it for even just a little while, you'll have such a like long, I mean, a lot of them will just be the same shit repeated, like animals eat other animals and stuff like that. But if you do it for even a little while, you'll be exposed to arguments that you would never even think people would make. And then it prepares you on how to answer them for if and when you go do outreach in person. But if you're a vegan activist, at this point you probably know what I'm talking about and you've had enough of these online conversations and, you know, you don't need to do anymore. So this is just an excellent place to apply mindfulness. When you're commenting back and forth with people, be mindful of how it makes you feel. Like, what are the physical sensations in your body? For example, for me, it can be like the tightening of my throat, weight and constriction on my chest, um, a brick or a knot in my stomach. Another probably surprising thing that I would say to ask yourself is, are you addicted to this shitty ass energy? Which seems like a really strange question, but really think about it. Are you addicted to this energy of like, you know, ego fighting and asserting and being right because, you know, the vegan, if you're arguing on the side of veganism, you're going to be right every time. And if you really are honest about it, sometimes that feeling of being right can be 
something that you want to continually feel. But furthermore, we get so used to being in a certain vibration and in a certain energy that even if it is not pleasant, it just becomes so comfortable that it's hard to leave it. You know, we might logically know like, okay, if I put my phone down for a few hours and go outside and go for a walk, I'd probably be, you know, a lot happier with that being my way of spending my time. But something pulls you to these comments. And of course, a big part of that is how addictive social media and especially the apps of social media can be. And we'll get to that in a minute. But truly, I invite yourself to be honest with yourself. Are you addicted to these shitty feelings? Do you find yourself checking the notifications over and over to see if people have responded back and then to be like, oh, well, I got something even better to say to them now? You know, things like that. Just be honest with yourself. Another thing is that as vegan activists, when we are debating or just doing any kind of activism, we have to protect ourselves from bullies and trolls. You know, I think a lot of people will act like, oh, the hate comments don't get to me. Oh, it doesn't get to me. Like, oh, it's, you know, I just ignore it. But do you really? Like, you know, sit and think about it. Do you really ignore it? Or are you just saying that so that people, including the bullies themselves, don't feel like they have power over you? Or so that they, you know, are you just portraying a message that it's not bothering you? Like, is it true? And maybe it is. I just know for me, it's not true. It's not true because every time it happens, every time it happens, unless I happen to be in an ecstatic, really good mood and I'm like with my friends or something when I see the comment and I'm like, ah, whatever. And, you know, I can read it out and we can all laugh at it. Unless like a situation like that occurs, Every single time I get a hateful comment about, like, my appearance, which I'm insecure about anyway, or, you know, I've been told to kill myself, I've been, you know, wished injury upon me, I've had my life threatened in comments just for standing up for animals, and I would be flat out lying if I were to say that doesn't affect me at all especially being a highly sensitive person. And every time it happens, my past traumas are triggered. Like I have the same feeling that I had when, you know, past abusers would say things to me. And it's just not okay for me to constantly be reliving that trauma. But moreover, you know, it's just feeding your subconscious with such negativity and it could be affecting your beliefs. And it is truly our beliefs that create our reality, not so much our thoughts, because thoughts are kind of like, what the fuck, you know, going on trains, like, okay, that was fucking weird, you know, thoughts, whatever. <laughs> it's it's our beliefs that create our reality, as far as I can understand from my study of, you know, the law of attraction and stuff. And I've also studied, like, subconscious programming and how subconscious programming affects said beliefs. And when you're constantly being subjected to these hateful comments. Even if you aren't affected in the moment, it still goes into your subconscious and it can still affect your beliefs, especially over time. 
you might feel like it's necessary to just take all of this for the animals and that you're helping the animals, but truly you're not because we need you to be happy and healthy and to have longevity as an activist, not to burn out after five years. And if you are really sensitive to these bullying comments that you might have received as an activist at any point, you just got to try and remember, like, what kind of person must they be to say these things? Like, how happy must they be? Because happy people and healthy people simply do not spread hate comments and, you know, unrelated personal attacks. At this point, you might be thinking, well, what if someone asks me a genuine question in a comment? Or what if I'm, like, on YouTube and I see, like, a, a video and I want to, like, make a vegan message comment? Well, that is where I would introduce the, you know, in, out, and done method. <laughs> so, the in, out, and done method is just as an example, you're on YouTube you see, let's say, the dodo posts a video about a dog that was rescued, and it's a sweet video, and you click on it, and everyone in the comments is like, oh, how sweet, oh, how wonderful, the people who saved him are so lovely. Make a quick comment that says, extend your love and compassion for this dog to other animals. Vegans try to save non-dog animals every day, go vegan, whatever, something extremely short and simple like that. Post it, and then ignore every, like, I don't check my notifications. And again, we'll get to the whole phone thing in, in a minute. But after you've said your comment, don't reply to anyone because you're going to get a bunch of replies and a lot of them are going to probably be toxic. Don't even read them. Just move on with your life. You've put the message out there. Your job as a vegan activist is to tell the truth, help animals, and that's it. That's it. If someone sees that and they are open to veganism and curious, they will follow the rabbit hole and, you know, get them there themselves. They have the internet at their fingertips. It's not your responsibility. And you not responding to every single reply is not stopping them from doing that. I just really want to drive that home because it took me so long to learn this. It took me like almost two years of being an activist to learn this. Another example could be like you're on YouTube. I'm using YouTube because I'd stay off social medias, but um, for the most part. But um, you're on YouTube and you see like now this makes some post that's related to climate change. Get in there, say the single biggest thing we can do to help fight climate change is go vegan. Source and then link the Oxford University study from Joseph Poor that that is that claim is from, and get out, in, out, and done, and. Don't even read any replies, you know, don't check your notifications, leave it alone. You've done your job. And this can be used with social media. If you want to make a status that says blah, 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 here's my source, link to source, you don't have to reply to any of the comments because you've already proven and backed your statement ahead of time. So if anyone wants to try and refute it without looking at the evidence that you cited, you don't have time for that shit. That's stupid. <laughs> and, you know, if people message you or comment to you on whatever medium it is, like, I just want to go vegan, but I don't know, like, what to cook, you know? It's not your job. Like, 
that person can use common sense and look up on YouTube vegan recipe. They can buy themselves a vegan cookbook. It's not your job to like life coach them on every facet of veganism. You know, you could just respond back challenge22.com and then, you know, be done with it. Or you could just like let them do it themselves. It's just, we have to create boundaries. And another thing I used to really struggle with when it pertains to comments is this thought process. Like, if I don't answer every single one of their rebuttals and debunk it, and they're the last, or they're the, sorry, they're the ones to get the last word, then they're going to think that they won, and then they're going to eat animals because I failed to reply to all of their arguments. Like, I used to genuinely think that, and that's just not true. You have to learn when to let it go. You have to learn when to walk away. And I had the hardest fucking time learning this. Maybe whoever's listening to this is like, yeah, I already knew that for a long time. I never really wasted a lot of time in the comments. But I don't think I'm alone here, though. Who cares if they think they won the debate because you didn't answer their last point? Like, who cares? Let them think that. That doesn't change the fact that the truth is still the truth. The next point on how to be happy as a vegan activist is to do your shadow work and don't bring your trauma to activism or debates. And this kind of bleeds in a lot with my last post, you know. When you are talking to someone, whether it is through comments or in person, and they say something, don't bring your trauma to the conversation, you know. Don't, you know, if they call you a name... Don't bring your trauma and, like, call them names back and stoop down and get into, like, an ego fight. There are many ways in which, you know, our trauma can get triggered from we see something and we get really angry and we react rather than respond. I have fucking done that so much with veganism. Um, You have to just kind of deal with your shadow work. Do your shadow work. Engage in therapy do meditation, do yoga, do journaling, do mindfulness, and do self-compassion. And if you have no idea what any of those things are, there's plenty of resources and books all over to get into. I recommend, just as one recommendation, the book Self-Compassion by Dr. Kristen Neff. Life-changing, transformative read. As vegan activists, we want to be as Earthling Ed-like as possible, you know, depending on the situation, of course. Some situations cause for more emotion and more assertiveness, like, for example, if you're speaking on a megaphone. But, you know, even at that point, you never want to, like, yell at people and tell them they're a fucking asshole or whatever. You just want to stay like Earthling Ed-like, you know? You'll know exactly what I mean if you're familiar with Earthling Ed's work. Keep it about the animals. Never make it personal. Never attack personal shit about people that's not related to veganism. Just keep it about the animals. Keep it about the facts. Keep it about the um, responses to arguments. And know when to walk away. Because a lot of unhappiness and stress and anxiety as activists literally comes from this one thing of talking to people online or in person about veganism and it is valid I mean it it can make you want to cry sometimes or want to scream out in rage when you've seen horrific suffering sometimes even in person and someone's sitting there 
either bullying you or making fun of you for it or saying like, oh, I'm going to go eat 10 animals just because of you or something like that. Like that, that sucks. That can be really hard to deal with. You have to give yourself compassion for that. But you can have a lot less of that in your life if you set the appropriate boundaries. Now, I I meant to mention this earlier on in the podcast, but I happen to be a person who has had a lifelong struggle with being happy. I think a small percentage of that has to do with genetics. Um, A pretty significant percentage of that has to do with past pains and traumas and working through those. And also part of it has to do with having ADHD and just dealing with anxiety and depression. Dealing with major debilitating, debilitating struggles of insecurity and fears of abandonment and things like that. We all have our shit, though. I'm not alone in this. You're not alone in whatever it is that you feel. And self-compassion is really helpful for that. Self-compassion, and again, the book I want you to read is Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff. It's about just validating your pains and your emotions and comforting yourself as if you would comfort a friend rather than just shitting on yourself with your own negative thoughts and narrative about yourself. I know for me that's been a major missing piece in my understanding of how to be happy. There's so many quotes from this book, but here's one of them. Self-compassion entails three core components. First, it requires self-kindness, that we be gentle and understanding with ourselves rather than harshly critical and judgmental. Second, it requires recognition of our common humanity, feeling connected with others in the experience of life rather than feeling isolated and alienated by our suffering. Third, it requires mindfulness, that we hold our experience in balanced awareness rather than ignoring our pain or exaggerating it. This book taught me the concept of, you know, if you notice that you're feeling tense, upset, sad, or self-critical, try giving yourself a warm hug, tenderly stroking your arm or face, or gently rocking your body. Like, I know it sounds weird, I know it sounds silly, but it does make a huge difference. A lot of times, all we want is to just be validated in our emotions, but instead we tend to repress them down or act like they're not there and engage in toxic positivity. And a lot of times the the level of pain will cut in half by just validating like, Okay, in this situation, it's reasonable that I feel this way. Um, This is a hard situation, you know? Just like comforting yourself a bit. Instead of resisting it, because resisting makes stronger. And suppressing stuff, or turning to substances and addictions, trying to spiritually bypass, all of that, it never works in the end because it, it always just ends up stuffing the energy down until one day you have a full-fledged breakdown and it all comes out because you can't hold it anymore. 
This book also talks about how our society teaches us that if we're not the absolute best at something, then we're basically worthless. Which leads to competition and comparing yourselves to others constantly. Just as an example, because, you know, I suffer and struggle so much with insecurity about my appearance. A quote. When you don't need to be perfect in order to feel good about yourself, you can drop the obsessive fixation with being thin enough or pretty enough and accept yourself as you are. Even revel in who you are. And then also, having compassion for the imperfection of our bodies can be especially challenging in a culture that is obsessed with physical attraction. And also, give yourself compassion for the difficulty of being an imperfect human. Everyone has aspects of their body they're unhappy with. Almost no one reaches their physical ideal. In this incredibly competitive society of ours, how many of us truly feel good about ourselves? It seems such a fleeting thing, feeling good, especially as we need to feel special and above average to feel worthy. Anything less seems like a failure. It is so true. It is so true that I am such, I am so <laughs> affected by this. And I think so many of us are, especially women. We feel like we can only feel good about ourselves if we look at people around us and focus on some trait. And if we look at the people around us and said trait is better within us and those people, then we're permitted to feel good. Until someone walks in the room who has a, a better version of that said trait than you, then everything's to shit and you want to die. <laughs> like, I, this is basically my life. Like, this is my shadow self that I am working through. So, one last thing about this book. When kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness are applied to the suffering of others, that's compassion. When it's applied to our own suffering, that's self-compassion. When it is applied to other people's positive qualities, that is mudita, or sympathetic joy. And when it is applied to our own positive qualities, it is self-appreciation. And you kind of need to learn how to engage in all four of those. It actually talks about how self-esteem is kind of a trap and is kind of just a show and how the real stuff is with self-compassion. It's very interesting. It involves a lot of research on how self-compassion makes you so much happier. Anyways, moving onward. Let's talk about phone addiction. Woo! Which brings me straight into another book. So, sorry if that's annoying, but this book is called How to Break Up with Your Phone by Katherine Price. I think we can all agree that we would have happier lives and feel more present and have more life experiences and do more cool shit if we weren't so fucking addicted to our phones. I want to read a few things from this book. Our phones, and especially certain apps, are designed to be addictive. So, you know, it's nothing to feel bad about. Like, don't feel bad about the fact that you keep 
anxiously picking up your phone over and over anytime you feel slight discomfort to try and, you know, soothe yourself. You're just addicted to it and it's really not your fault. That They're sinisterly designed to be addictive. So apply self-compassion here and don't judge yourself as we talk further. In order to maximize the amount of time we spend on our devices, designers manipulate our brain chemistry in ways that are known to trigger addictive behaviors. Most of these techniques involve a brain chemical called dopamine. Dopamine has many roles, but for our purposes, the most important thing to know is that by activating pleasure-related receptors in our brains, it teaches us to associate certain behaviors with rewards. Think of a rat that gets a pellet every time it presses a lever. Every time they press a lever. (laughs) I'm going to correct. Dopamine makes us feel excited, and we like feeling excited. Any experience that triggers the release of dopamine is therefore something that we'll want to experience again. But that's not all. If an experience constantly triggers the release of dopamine, our brains remember the cause and effect. Eventually, they will release dopamine anytime they're reminded of the experience. They'll release it, in other words, in anticipation. The ability to anticipate satisfaction is essential for our survival. It motivates us to seek out food, for example, but it also causes cravings and, in in more extreme cases, addictions. If your brain learns that checking your phone usually results in a reward, it won't take long before your brain releases dopamine any time it's reminded of your phone. You'll start to crave it. Ever notice how seeing someone else check their phone can make you want to check yours? Interestingly, these rewards can be positive or negative. Sometimes we reach for our phones out of hope or anticipation that there will be something good waiting for us. But just as often, and I would say if we're a vegan activist, perhaps more often, we reach for our phones to help us avoid something unpleasant such as boredom or anxiety. It doesn't matter. Once our brains have learned to associate checking our phones with getting a reward, we are going to be really, really, really wanting to check our phones. We become like lab rats, constantly pressing the lever to get food. Thankfully, food cravings naturally subside when our stomachs feel full. Otherwise, our stomachs might explode. But phones and apps are deliberately designed without stopping cues to alert us when we've had enough. Which is why it's so easy to accidentally binge. On a certain level, we know that what we're doing is making us feel gross. But instead of stopping, our brains decide the solution is to seek out more dopamine. We check our phones again. And again. And again. I would also want to interject here and say that the same exact thing happens when you watch porn. You know, the more you watch, the more stimulation and videos you're required to get aroused and to receive pleasure. I mean, I unfortunately was exposed to porn at 10 years old. It was left open on a laptop. And, you know, I had a porn addiction back when I was like a teenager and even a young adult. And I am happy to say I've been off of it for quite a good amount of time now. And it's terrible because it makes you dependent on it to the point where it's extremely difficult to be aroused like in a real human with human situation or when you're by yourself you're dependent on it but you know 
the good news is when you quit, it just takes some time and you can get back and be good and stuff. But I just want to add that in there. Um, furthermore, porn is also just <laughs> toxic altogether because you never know if everyone in these videos is always consenting to the activity. You know, porn is involved with human sex trafficking. It's just bad altogether. So there's my little bit in here on not watching porn. It's just not worth it. Another quote. Every moment of attention we spend scrolling through social media is attention spent making money for someone else. The numbers are staggering. A New York Times analysis calculated that as of 2014, Facebook users were spending a collective 39,757 years worth of attention on the site every single day. It's attention that we didn't spend on our families or our friends or ourselves. And just like time, once we've spent attention, we can never get it back. This is a really big deal because our attention is the most valuable thing we have. We experience only what we pay attention to. I'm going to read that one again. We experience only what we pay attention to. We remember only what we pay attention to. When we decide what to pay attention to in the moment, we are making a broader decision about how we want to spend our lives. Whew. Another quote. But that's not to say that we only casually focus our attention on our phones. On the contrary, they completely absorb us. The result is what seems like should be an oxymoron, an intensely focused state of distraction. As it turned out, this type of frequent focused distraction isn't just capable of creating long-lasting changes in our brains, it is particularly good at doing so. In his 2010 book, The Shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains, journalist Nicholas Carr wrote that if you were to set out to invent a medium that would rewire our mental circuits as quickly and thoroughly as possible, you would probably end up designing something that looks and works a lot like the internet. Today, I'd argue that we can take this even further. If you wanted to invent a device that could rewire our minds, if you wanted to create a society of people who were perpetually distracted, isolated, and overtired, if you wanted to weaken our memories and damage our capacity for focus and deep thought, if you wanted to reduce empathy, encourage self-absorption, and redraw the lines of social etiquette, you'd likely end up with a smartphone. Wow. And I also wanted to read that quote because of how, you know, it talks in this book that being on your phone a lot reduces your empathy and increases your self-absorption. And that can be really difficult for us vegan activists. You know, a certain level of empathy is required for people to step into veganism. I mean, our society, if we don't set boundaries and question things, is really set up to just make us be on autopilot and not question things and just go along with things and be numb and, you know, <laughs> and that's why so many people are not vegan yet, among other issues. That's why people are so caught up in the material world and in consumerism and why people are not extending empathy to issues of human rights and ethics. 
and climate change and just general issues. We'd rather just say, fuck it all. The world's going to hell anyway. So I'm just gonna be on my phone all day and buy shit and look to the external material world for happiness and to fill this void. So yeah, the book just has a guide that you can follow. I'm following like each different day's thing to do for the day. For example, one of the days is simply to just not charge your phone in your bedroom anymore and to pick a different place. Just really approachable, non-judgmental, easy ways to gradually be on your phone a lot less. And whether that means you just don't go on certain apps anymore, or you create certain boundaries, or you could even move to a lifestyle where you get rid of your smartphone altogether and move to like an old phone that can only text and call, which I kind of have that in my mind as a long-term goal. So I definitely recommend that. I mean, we waste so much time on our phones. And as activists, the pressure to be on our phones and to be on social media can increase because you feel like you need to keep up with the events and with vegan news and with answering comments, as I've talked about before. And it can, it can be too much. That shit will lead to burnout so fast. You know, think about the things that genuinely make you happy. I promise you, answering Facebook comments is not going to be on that list. It's going to be things like, I'm just going to give my own examples, but singing, playing guitar, drawing, going for walks, being in nature, um, things like that, all of which really don't involve a phone at all. And if you really think about the happiest kind of lifestyle, it is more of a no-phone lifestyle. It's more of being present. It's engrossing yourself and getting into that flow state of activities, deeply connecting with others without any barricades. So the next tip for how to be happy as a vegan activist is to take breaks. Just take breaks, you know? For example... You know, my mom and I, vigils were really starting to get to us. And if you're not aware, vigils are where you visit slaughterhouses and you give water to the animals on the trucks because legally they can travel 36 hours without being given any water. And I'm sure it's often more than that because it's not like anyone's enforcing that. You know, they arrive sickly in their own shit and super thirsty to the point where if it rains, they lick the rain outside of the holes. It's terrible. And they're just waiting to have their throats slit. So it's like, you know, there's nothing we can do for them, but we can try and provide, you know, compassion and comfort and water in their last moments and to document their suffering so that we can encourage others to see that and use it as inspiration to go vegan. Um, but anyway... You can get PTSD from that. I mean, my mom went to a vigil once where there was a downed dairy cow. Because if you didn't know, the dairy industry takes away babies from the mothers over and over for years until they collapse. And and it's exhausting. It depletes their body. And, and eventually they just are what's known as a down a downer. And they can't get up anymore, like their legs broke or their hips dislocated or whatever it may be. And one of these cows, this happened to them on the slaughter truck at a vigil. 
and the solder workers slit her throat and decapitated her right there on the truck in front of activists. They tried to hide the truth. They were throwing shit at activists. I have a video about this. Uh, the YouTube channel Plant Strength has a good video about this as well. I mean, something like that, you're going to have some amount of PTSD from it. It's a traumatic thing that you're witnessing. And so you have to take breaks. You can't go to vigils like every two weeks or every week or whatever it may be, you know? Figure out, like, what your limit is and don't ever force yourself to go to things like that if you, if you can tell that you just can't take it that day, you know? Like, try and be there for the animals, but be there for yourself first. Otherwise, you're going to burn out. If doing outreach cubes and street activism, you do it a lot, like, say it's summertime and the weather's nice and you're doing it, like, every week or something... And then you eventually get upset and resentful even of just how many conversations you have that perhaps don't go well or, you know, that's happened to me a lot of times doing outreach. Um, and, you know, take a break from that. Reapproach it in a month or two or however long you need when you're feeling better about it. Do activism in different ways in the meantime. And, you know, you can just take a, a break from activism altogether anytime you want, you know? The next tip for being happy as a vegan activist is to plan fun social or casual social events with other vegans, your vegan friends. This is one of the single biggest way to avoid burnout as an activist because... You're doing something positive because, unfortunately, since we're dealing with a tragic ongoing injustice, most of our activism is more on the negative shadow side of life. It needs to be exposed and it, it, the truth of it needs to be told. However, it is undeniably, you know, on that shadow side and not so much on that fun, happy side of life. And so you need to balance it out and combat it. So I know this is totally random and kind of an interruption of that last thought wave, but I just officially was on the phone with my future therapist making my first appointment. I've tried counseling and stuff in the past, but I do feel good about this person that I chose. And that's just another tip I have for you is to get therapy. There's no shame in it. You know, we all need to pretty much at some points in our life, if not always. But anyway, back to what I was talking about. Having, you know, your vegan group, your vegan family, whatever it may be, and getting together and doing positive things, it gives you that community feeling. It allows you to be around people who understand and who get it because a lot of us have non-vegan family members and non-vegan friends and it can be so frustrating. Now, this next point might be interesting, but for me, a lot of why I might feel unhappy as it pertains to vegan activism is because I actually feel, like, guilty about talking about veganism, you know? I mean, our society has such, like I've mentioned all the time, such a negative bias against vegan activists that sometimes the world can make you really question and doubt yourself 
for even being a vegan activist at all. Sometimes people's responses to activism are so vile that you you wonder to yourself, like, am I doing something bad? Am I, like, what am I doing? And it's so often taken the wrong way and people go just immediately on the defense and that can be really stressful, especially to sensitive people like myself who really don't want to hurt anyone, you know, like at all. And that can make us kind of, you know, there's one end of the spectrum where you're overly trying to answer every debate point and just constantly immersing yourself in that. And, you know, you can take things too far to where you resort to personal attacks and you scream like, fuck you, you know, eating animals, you're fat or something like that. And just being like totally toxic and a bully through your activism and then there's the opposite end of the spectrum where you're so scared and afraid of hurting anyone's feelings and you're so uncomfortable by people's reactions to activism and the message of being kind to animals that you just want to hide and you know not do it anymore and so don't feel bad if you get on this end of the spectrum you know um it can happen, especially to people who are, you know, have struggles of being people pleasers or who have certain past traumas and who have perhaps struggled with being codependent. And my tip for this is when you ever feel yourself kind of getting this way, just watch a documentary, perhaps rewatch a documentary, you know, watch or rewatch some of the footage when you find yourself kind of being an apologist or feeling bad about speaking up for the animals in one way or another, just to remind yourself why you're doing it. But the important thing here is don't then binge on this content. You know, don't watch it like way too much to where, you know, I don't think I have to explain that part. Because the world will really make you feel like you're a crazy psychopath and you're wasting your time and you're doing something toxic. And again, visit my toxic positivity episode for more on this. And that in itself can make you feel unhappy and uneasy and doubt yourself. And a healthy amount of seeing footage, watching documentaries and going to vigils will remind you that you are doing a good thing. You are doing something that it takes a lot of courage to do and you should feel nothing but confidence and nothing but proud because you are on the right side of history and you are making a positive difference. You know, think about what the animals would want you to do. Another tip for being happy is having healthy routines. And I'll just go over real quickly an example of this with my current morning routine for the springtime. And so what I do is I wake up and I've been trying to wake up more close to sunrise because there's something about a sunrise that is just so beautiful and amazing. Anyway, I wake up and I go outside because it's springtime and I go without any shoes or socks. I go in the grass. I observe, you know, the sun's about to rise or maybe it already has risen depending on when I wake up and I observe some of the flowers and be present and I take some breaths and then I say my out loud verbal affirmations because that's a really good way to program your subconscious mind 
toward more of positive psychology, you know, like an example of an affirmation is I am whole, self-assured and happy on my own from within. Um, and when you say the same ones every day, it gets into your subconscious, it rewires those neural pathways and over time, even if things don't feel true at first, if you continue to say them any anyway, to an extent, you know, again, like if you're going through a, a grief or something, maybe isn't the best time to say affirmations because you don't want to spiritually bypass and you don't want to engage in toxic positivity. But as a general rule, if your life is going, you know, pretty good and nothing, you're not dealing with something that needs your attention as far as the shadowy side of life. Saying these affirmations every day, even if an affirmation like, for example, I am fit, doesn't feel true at first, eventually, over time, and maybe over even a couple months or several weeks or something, your brain will start to take that in and then it will go, okay, I'm sitting on the couch all day and I'm eating <laughs> morning star vegan chicken patties all day. This is in conflict with this new thing I've wired into my brain that says I am fit. So therefore, you know, this doesn't align with me anymore. And then you start to feel more of an urge to do things that would align with that reality of being fit, if that makes sense. There's loads of resources on YouTube about reprogramming your brain and about affirmations and the science behind why they work. And I will say, you know, I engage in meditation, I engage in yoga, I engage in mindfulness and all these things. I think, you know, perhaps meditation is the most important, but a very close second would be these out loud verbal affirmations. And it's even more powerful if you're able to. Don't force it. I don't do this every day. But if you're feeling up to it, say them with like strong enthusiasm and belief. And that also makes a huge difference. It's good to do affirmations right after you wake up because your brain is still in, and I don't remember if it's alpha, beta, or theta, I don't know. A good book for this is um, a book, you know what, I don't remember the title, so scratch that thought. Um, but an ideal time to reprogram your mind, your mind's more susceptible to it, is when your mind's in certain brave way... Ugh brain wavelengths after you just wake up. So that's an ideal time to say affirmations. So I do that out in nature, enjoy the beautiful springtime, and I come in or I stay outside and I do my meditation and I just generally do between 10 and 20 minutes. Just depends on the day of a meditation. It'll either be a guided one from YouTube or it'll be quiet. And I just do that every day and it's life-changing. It it really, it's like, it's a gradual thing that just makes your life, if you meditate every day for years, as I pretty much have been since around 2017, the result of that has been my life gradually getting better, like on a graph that's just like kind of linear going up rather than having my life kind of be the same and not really improving or going down. That's what I truly think is the result of meditation. I mean, I don't just think it, I know it, I live it. And it's not just me, it's 
meditation is backed by science. Look into it. So anyway, and then after that, I will have my coffee. And if it's a, you know, I set strict boundaries with my phone. I'm in the process of, you know, breaking up with my phone, as I've said. So sometimes I will read a book or just be out in nature and enjoy my coffee. And then a couple days a week, I'm allowed access to YouTube videos and I'll watch like those and consciously pick YouTube videos that I genuinely want to watch from like my favorite creators, such as Isabel Page, the best vlogger in the world. She lives in the mountains and she's so off grid and she's so like no phone and she eats a whole foods plant-based diet and she's so she's like probably the happiest person I've ever seen and of course I only see from videos but she genuinely seems like one of the happiest people because her life is so simple and so in nature and so like just the joy of (laughs) that kind of life and it's beautiful and it's inspired me so much to make changes but anyway so I'll watch something like that that's really worthwhile to watch then I have a snack and I do morning yoga um, which is a new thing so now I do yoga every day in the morning and I'm I'm serious like I always resisted doing morning yoga I always did it in the evening instead but morning yoga truly does hit differently and it really does result in you doing it more consistently And yeah, so that's basically my routine. Then I go and have a nice breakfast and I have my schedule for, you know, I work for myself as a content creator, artist, and activist. And yeah, and just having good routines for yourself to make sure that you prioritize self-care, that you prioritize quality time with your loved ones, activities that you enjoy where you're in the moment and you're present and off your phone and things that you've always wanted to do, you can start doing them, especially when you get off your phone. And that, of course, is a beautiful, wonderful way to be happy, to be happier. And again, it's not about being happy all the time. It's just about the overall flavor of your life. You know, is the overall flavor of your life, the, or perhaps, if you will, the vibrational set point that you kind of tend to be at, Is it one of, like, stress and anxiety, or is it one of, like, joy and happiness? And how can you get up to joy and happiness if you are down at stress and anxiety, which is completely understandable given our society and this pandemic and everything. Another one of my daily affirmations is I only spend my time and energy on worthwhile things. Like, really take that in and, you know, ask yourself before you do everything, do I really want to spend my time and energy on this? And another good tip is to have boundaries with others rather than expectations of others. I get caught in this all the time where, you know, I kind of, even though I know it's not logical or likely, I tend to expect people like my boyfriend, for example, to do and act in ways in certain situations as I would, like to the exact T of my exact values and how I would handle things. And then when they don't, because they're their own separate individual person, I get, like, shocked Pikachu face. 
and then I have a hard time dealing with that and I, you know, I'll get disappointed. You can't have expectations for others, especially you cannot depend your happiness on other people fulfilling expectations. Um, but what you can do instead is have boundaries. And another example is like you can't have expectations of every vegan outreach conversation you have to go well and to lead to that person going home and going vegan. That's just not realistic. You don't know where along in someone's journey, how much empathy they have, how much compassion they have, how much intelligence they have, how much consciousness they have. You just don't know. And it's not, it's, you're kind of gambling. You know, Earthling Ed's own parents are not vegan. So don't ever feel like someone not going vegan is your fault because it's completely not. You know, you not being a perfect vegan activist is not the reason for anyone not going vegan, despite people always telling you, and this is probably something I should have covered earlier, but people will always tell you, like, change this about your method, change this about your approach, people aren't going vegan because your approach is blah, 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 and that's all nonsense, you know, take constructive criticism, but get rid of, like, especially from non-vegans trying to tell you how to do activism, because, like, what nerve? What nerve? Take constructive criticism, you know, think about it and come back to it, and everything else just, like, fuck it all, man. <laughs> fuck it all. As long as you're not being a bully, you're not name-calling or talking down to people or hurting people, then do whatever style of activism you want. There's no right or wrong way to do it to an extent. You know what I mean? Everyone has their place within this movement. You have to do activism that is authentic to you and your personality and do activism in a way that you enjoy because it doesn't have to be dark all the time. You know, activism can be extremely fulfilling and can add to your happiness if you have the appropriate boundaries with it and you're doing it in a way that is not of people pleasing others but which is actually authentic to who you are and how you want to do things. Another good way to be happier is to take leaps of faith and take risks in life and you know go on that road trip, go sing on that stage, you know, have courage don't be afraid in life to love, to give your heart to someone. Immerse yourself in things that are fun. You know, get away from consumerism. Get away from materialism. Be present. Be more minimalistic and simple. It really is the little things in life and it really is the moments that we're present. And life really is what we pay attention to. You know organize your priorities. Don't put your office job that you hate above your family. Time is precious. Focus your time and energy on what is truly in alignment with your values and what's most important to you. And be your authentic self. You know, if, if you're gay, if you're bisexual, if you want to be polyamorous, ethically, of course, if you want to live off-grid, if you want to live in a city, you know, if you want to dress like this or dress like that, just do what is authentic to you. 
and express yourself without fearing what people think because we're on this rock that's rotating around the sun and no one knows what the fuck's going on. So don't live for other people, you know? Don't live by other people's rules. Do what makes you happy as long as it's not harming anyone, including animals, you know? Don't ever forget that. If your hobby is riding horses or fishing or hunting, get a new fucking hobby. There's so much more to life than taking the freedom of others and killing others, you know? I promise. I used to ride horses and I'm so much happier now that I have other hobbies that are so much more fulfilling. You'll be fine. Live and let live, which includes letting animals live. And don't live and let live when someone's hurting someone else. When someone's hurting someone else, step in and do what you can to make a positive impact in this world for the planet, for the animals. Yeah. So that brings me to the conclusion of this episode. If you're not already vegan, listen to the TEDx talk, Every Argument Against Veganism by Earthling Ed on YouTube. Also watch Dominion Movement, the documentary on YouTube or at watchdominion.com. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, Alicia Demi, that's A-L-I-S-I-A space D-E-M-I. I have the podcast on there as well as Spotify, Anchor, and Apple. You deserve to live an unapologetic, happy, fulfilled, and peaceful life where you just are living it and you have boundaries and no one can fuck with you. So go do it. Start today. Sending you the passion and energy and inspiration to do that. And I hope that you will come back and listen again to the Stop the Violence podcast. Have a beautiful day. Get out and enjoy the springtime. Bye!